You're listening to The Scope, a podcast dedicated to having open conversations about healthcare topics relevant to our patients and community. Today, we're talking about valvular heart disease. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Paul Hackbarth, and moving forward, I'll be hosting The Scope podcast with Paige Heitman. Today, our guest is Dr. Tim Martin. Uh, he's a cardiologist here with the Phelps Health Medical Group. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. All righty. Uh, well, well, we're glad to have you with us. To kick us off here, Dr. Martin, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see here. I've been here about 22 years. Uh, my dad and I moved down here to uh, start a cardiology program, mm-hmm. uh, working for initially Barnes Hospital, Washington University. So we were professors of medicine at that time. And uh, when WashU moved out, we were offered a position here at uh, Phelps Health to run the cardiology program, which we graciously accepted, and we've been continuing ever since. And since that point in time, over the last seven years, we've been growing the program, and now we're up to six cardiologists, three interventionalists, and we just started an interventional program, um, and we're uh, continuing to expand. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. So it's always nice to see when the uh, service lines like that are growing. So before we uh, dive into valvular heart disease, let's maybe start out with the basics. Um, Can you explain what are heart valves and how do they function? Can you give us an overview? You know, every time you talk about disease, you have to start with the basics. Mm -hmm. And the basics is anatomy. The Mm -hmm. heart sitting in the middle of the chest is a mammalian heart. It's not unique to humans. It's unique to all mammals, whether you're blue whale, which is the largest mammal in the world, or a shrew, which is the smallest mammal in the world, the hearts are all similar. We have four chambers, and the chambers are divided by valves. We have two upper chambers and two lower chambers on the left and the right, and then we have exit valves so the blood can move. So for example, on the right side, we have the blood returning into the right upper chamber, which we call the atrium, or right atrium for short, RA for short. And then we have the lower chamber called the ventricles, or RV for short. So this acts as a unique pump independent of the left side, in essence, taking the blood that is returning to the heart with deoxygenated blood, and it then sends it to the lungs. In order to have a pump work, we need an inlet valve and we need an exit valve. And this is not unique just to the heart, but to any pump that we use, water pump, gas pump, any word with pump, we have to have a way to get whatever we're moving into a pumping chamber that has to then close and keep it from going backwards and then we have an exit for the fluid when the pump works. Different than mechanical pumps, the heart pumps not a hundred percent of the volume it receives, it pumps in the order of 50 percent, 40 or 50 to 60 percent. So that at the end of every contraction, whether we're talking about the right side or the left side, we have about a 60% ejection of the total volume. And that becomes important down the road for managing heart failure and other conditions. These valves are designed to allow a one-way direction. So on the right side, we have the tricuspid valve that actually separates the right upper chamber, the atrium again, and the right lower chamber called the ventricle. And as the pump squeezes that tricuspid valve, three leaflets, are therefore tricuspid, shuts, and as the pressure rises, it forces the blood out into the lungs, which is the main function of the right ventricle, into the main artery of the lungs called the pulmonary, which is the technical or medical term for um, a lung, 
and because blood's exiting the heart, it goes into the pulmonary artery, which then distributes to the lungs. Now, as the blood gets oxygenated, it comes back to the heart with all the oxygen and loss of all the CO2. So it then refills now the left side. The left side fills into the left atrium. As the heart finishes its last contraction, the heart relaxes and the blood comes from the upper left chamber down into the lower left chamber, again the atrium into the ventricle, through a valve we call the mitral valve. And the mitral valve then shuts when the heart contracts again, forcing blood, <clears throat> excuse me, forcing blood out into the main artery of the body called the aorta. Now, if we know what's going on on the right side, as far as the amount of blood being pushed into the lungs, we know what's going on the left side. So we can actually do tests and, and assess mechanically the left side by assessing the right side. And we've learned to do that over the years, initially with catheters or what we call tubes, but more recently, in the last two decades, three decades, with ultrasound. We can now measure a lot of heart function, valvular disease, and its overall uh, ability to, to work by doing an ultrasound examination and looking at different parameters. Okay, so that's great. I love that explanation. So very, very detailed. Um, so now that we know what the valves are, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what is valvular heart disease and can you, can you walk us through the different types of um, the disease? So we're limited in time, but we'll go over a general evaluation. Okay. Yeah. So valves, again, allow one-way direction of blood flow. So anything that interferes with that particular function, we can attribute to a disorder of the valve. Now, when you say valvular heart disease, it's really valvular heart disorder. Okay. So the disorder is a result of possibly an infection, possibly an injury, uh, or possibly uh, related to uh, radiation, chemotherapy, any a number of events. Okay. So all, we have four valves. We can have disorders caused by different disease states on each of the valves. And we, again, use ultrasound to assess them initially because it's a non-invasive way of looking at the heart and the function of the valves as they open mechanically and as they allow blood to flow. So when we talk about valve disorders, we can talk about two different types in general classifications. One is a narrowing of the valve, where the valve doesn't quite open like it should and it restricts the blood flow. Or we can talk about its inability to close or what we call co-apt, and that allows, that prevents the blood which initially prevents the blood from going backwards, now provides a conduit for the blood to go in a backwards direction. And everybody can understand that if you have a pump and you've got whatever fluid's coming in and it doesn't all go out the exit valve and it goes back the way it came, the pump becomes inefficient. Right, that's not a good valve. So. <laughs> it's not a good valve. And we, 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 again, can assess that initially by symptoms of the patient, physical exam. A doctor may examine you and say, hmm, you've got a murmur, which is the turbulent sound that we get when it goes back 
through the valve that has a narrow opening or it's going out a narrow opening. Both ways cause turbulent blood flow. When the valves don't close or coap completely, you have a small opening and as the pressure rises and the blood goes back through, it causes turbulence. The turbulence causes noise. And I guess the best acronym would be if anybody, everybody's watered their garden in the past and they turn on the hose and you hear the water rushing out of the end. And what happens when you put your thumb over the end of the hose? Well, the water goes further, but you hear that high pitch shh, because that's the turbulence of the fluid going through that narrowing and, um, and disturbing the air around it. Okay. We have the same problem. We see the same thing in heart disease. Okay. When we hear those murmurs, either during the contracting phase or the relaxation phase, the doctor may say, hmm, you have a murmur. Now, that concerns a lot of people because like, oh my God, there's something wrong with my heart. And it typically will generate an evaluation either by the primary physician or the um, nurse practitioner involved in the case to either a referral to a cardiologist or to a 2D echo Doppler. Again, we keep going back to that because it's our non-invasive way of monitoring the heart, sonar uh, of the heart, and we can tell a lot from that function. Okay. So, well, thank you. Yeah, that, that's really that's really interesting. So, uh, I want to touch back. Um, so, you said um, so. You talked about some of the symptoms. Can you kind of go over some of the symptoms of what a doctor and a patient might talk about uh, if they think that they do have valvular heart disorder? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. The, the reality is, is that if the pump is not functioning in an appropriate fashion, whether it's going through trying to get out a narrowed valve or it's going back the wrong way, I think everyone can, can, can understand that we have an inefficient pump, right? We'll go back to how much blood is ejected, which we call the fractional blood of, of uh, ejected or pushed out. We call that the ejection fraction for short. So as the ejection fraction deteriorates due to either inability to get blood out through an air valve or it goes back through a leaky valve, again, one that's not co-apting and sealing tight, the, the re ultimate result is a drop in the ejection fraction and more importantly, a different term we're gonna talk about now and that is cardiac output. The ejection fraction just measures the percentage of blood going out. The cardiac output is actually the true measure of blood going to the body. We use scientific notation, so you may hear from your doctor, your ejection fraction is low, and they'll give you a number, and your cardiac output is at so many liters per minute. Now, we don't use that typically in discussions of valvular heart disease with patients because it changes. So cardiac output's a good measure for us, but more importantly, the ejection fraction is what we use to determine functionality of the heart. So as that ejection fraction drops, as the cardiac output forward towards the body or lungs drops, we see is the development of symptoms. People will feel tired, they have no energy, they get shorter breath, depending on the phase of the, the, the valve function. Uh, they get, uh, sometimes they get chest pain initiating, uh, that initiated the symptoms or is now present. So it goes back to forward flow and effective cardiac output. 
So those the, those would be the kind of symptoms you might maybe look for. Maybe if you if you feel that you maybe are experiencing some of those symptoms, those might be something you want to mention to your doctor about those. Correct. So, yeah. Any so. any time you have a change in your physiology and change in your functionality, it's always a good decision to talk with your phys- your yeah. physician, especially your your primary. That's our starting point. Okay. So. Uh, they need to. You know, hey, I'm not feeling well. I've noticed over the last three months, I've not been able to do anything. They may address the question in a sense. Well, what were you doing three months ago? And they'd say, well, I could go up a flight of stairs with, you know, laundry, or I could go up a flight of stairs to um, from the basement or two flights. I could work. I could walk two miles. Now I can't do that. And they'll give us a, a number. And that's always a question I ask them. So um, how far were you walking? I was walking two miles a day. How far can you walk now? I can't walk more than half a mile. And that is a sign that something's going on. Not necessarily valvular heart disease, but there's a change in the body's ability to keep up with your needs. Okay. Okay. Now we're bleeding into the consequences of heart disease, valvular, ischemic, doesn't matter. We're bleeding into that, that terminology, which you may or may not hear, and that is, oh my gosh, I have heart failure. Okay, and that's a very important um, definition that people need to understand. I think it needs is pertinent to this discussion. Heart failure merely means that the heart is unable to keep up with the needs of the body. It's a broad term. It's an ugly term because people are like, oh my God, something's wrong with my heart, and they go down this pathway. The majority of people have normal squeezing function. They have abnormal relaxation patterns from whatever reason. Exacerbations of heart failure or the inability to maintain the need of the body uh, can be exacerbated by, back to our subject, valvular heart disease. Okay. So Dr. Martin, um, another question um, I thought of is, uh, who is at risk for valvular heart disease? Are certain people more at risk than others? Um, Talk a little bit about that. Oh, great question. That's a great question. Um, You know, genetically, there are people that are born with abnormal valves, okay? And it is not a valvular heart disease. Again, it's a valvular heart disorder. And so individual with family members who have had an abnormal valve develop, and we know about mom, dad, grandma, grandpa had an abnormal valve, children may or may not be at risk for that. We're still working out the genetics. However, there does seem to be a higher preponderance of transmission in some cases. In particular, one that's very common to valvular heart disease, but still very rare, is a valvular heart disorder of the aortic valve. Now, the aortic valve is the exit valve for the left side. Okay, It's supposed to allow blood to go out into the main artery called the aorta. There we go, the name aortic valve. Right. Excuse me, and it um, is normally shaped like that of a Mercedes-Benz sign when it's closed. It's exactly it looks like that. Mm -hmm. There's three different cusps, and these cusps or valves open up completely to the side of the aortic wall when the heart's contracting. Some people are born with only two cusps, and even more rare than that, they're born with one. And so that can cause problems down the road. And uh, we see that more typically of any other valve disorder. 
Other valve disorders that can happen are individuals, can have individuals who had infections early on in life. Okay, young, young children who have strep throat and um, have um, uh, sore throats frequently and are not treated for the strep throat. Strep throat being, again, uh, the acronym for uh, bacterial infection of the back of the throat. However, it, it does get into the blood, and when the bacteria gets into the blood, it can affect the valves. The interesting thing is we don't see that consequence for about five or six decades. Hmm. And then they hmm. show up to our hospital with the symptoms we talk about, shortness of breath, a little bit of chest discomfort, maybe a little bit of swelling in their legs. First test we do, we circle back around, it's an echocardiogram, physical exam, then echocardiogram, and then lo and behold, we see that the mitral valve or aortic valve is typically affected with this infection or narrowed and have a problem. The mitral narrowing is called mitral stenosis, aortic narrowing is called aortic stenosis. And with that, we have progressive deterioration of, of uh, individuals' um, functionality, development of symptoms, and then it affects the heart function overall. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know. Um, I didn't know that about the the genetic uh, component of that. So that was uh, that's something, that's something I'm learning something new mm -hmm. today. So, so uh, once um, valvular heart disorder has been diagnosed, um, that I guess that leads me to our next question. Um, how is the disorder treated, and what are the treatment options for somebody who has this? And broad question. <laughs> and I like that. Those are all good questions. It depends on the valve we're talking about. Okay. So you can have uh, disorders of any of the valves, right? Right. The disorders of the tricuspid valves, sort of the pulmonic, disorders of the aortic and mitral. The big two are the aortic and mitral. Those cause the most problems. However, you can have dysfunction of the other valves more rarely, and those are associated with different functions. But the beginning is always a, hey, talk to your doctor. Right, okay. What's going on? And if you're not getting the answers, and you're not getting satisfaction uh, to, uh, to your questions, then you need to move on. Uh, you know, you need to, you know, not getting better. I don't think it's this. Is there anything else we can do? Okay. The majority of physicians will uh, go ahead and order a 2D echo Doppler. It's a non-invasive study, sonar, where we put a probe on the chest at various locations. We shoot sonar through the heart, and we can actually want, watch it move in real time. Oh. Uh, and we can see the blood moving through the, the valves in real time. And it, we can determine not only functionality of the amount of blood being ejected out, but we can actually determine now its ability to relax and go back to its normal shape. So that's always the beginning. If there are any abnormalities noted or the patient continues to have a problem, obviously the next step would be a referral to a cardiologist. We have six now and a nurse practitioner working with us and uh, we, we have uh, plenty of room to see people. Awesome. And that would be that then they would do the assessment starting off again with a history tell me what's going on, right. and then a physical exam followed by a review of the test results and then the future plan. Depending on the valve and depending on the disorder determines what the treatment's gonna be. Most of the time, when we catch them early enough, we can say, oh, we know what's going on, we're gonna treat you medically. No need to proceed with an invasive treatment of either surgery or a invasive study like a cardiac catheterization. The more later stages as the valve deteriorates and heart function becomes affected, we then move to the next stage and that would be tried medicine's not working, valve appears to be deteriorating by serial ultrasounds. I think what we need to do is go 
and get more information, and that would be a direct assessment of evaluation with a cardiac catheterization, which we do here at Phelps Health. And that contains putting a tube or a catheter up in the heart, measuring the pressures at the different locations, measuring the cardiac output, looking at the coronary anatomy, that's the arteries supplying the heart muscle, and then making determinations on whether we need to go to surgery or continue to treat medically. Now, most cardiologists will tell you when you talk about valvular heart disease, we focus mainly on the left side because those are the, the big valves that are affected. And um, we have um, developed techniques over the last several decades where people no longer need to go to surgery. We can do a catheter-based treatment of valvular heart disease, and that's becoming more prominent. I think people don't know there's for aortic valve disorders with aortic stenosis, we are now sending people to get these valves replaced with what we call a transaortic valve replacement, or TAVR for short. That's done just like a cardiac catheterization, where we go up through the artery of the leg, cross the valve, and deploy a stent with a valve in it. And that valve then sits there, and it relieves the obstruction for aortic stenosis. And more recently, we started doing that for much valves. They're undergoing analysis and studies up at Washington University and a few of the other um, institutions across the United States. Okay. So we're hoping to now move to mitral valve replacements in the same fashion. So uh, going back to, you mentioned surgery. Um, so during surgery, um, is the valve, um, can, can it sometimes be repaired? Um, does it have to be replaced with something? Um, can you kind of explain that a little bit more? So, so surgery is still utilized. Mm -hmm. Not so much for the aortic valve these days because we're doing the tabbers. Okay. But mitral valve and the rest of the valves, we do do surgery. And the process of undergoing surgery is usually another hospital, we don't have a surgeon here. They open up the chest, they open up the heart, and depending on the disorder of the valve, will determine what's going to happen. If the valve has degenerated and ruptured a, uh, its uh, support, they repair them surgically. And we know now, looking retrospectively through our data, that repair of the valve is much more effective than putting a new valve in. However, there are still those individuals who have valve deterioration that is so severe that the valve has to be replaced, at which point the surgeon will cut the valve out. And in the case of the mitral valve, we'll cut the valve out and replace it with either a mechanical or a bioprosthetic valve. And they comes on a ring and they sew it in place and then they attach the uh, muscle back to the ring itself so that it aids in contraction. Aortic valve, same thing, they cut the aortic valve, then they put a new valve in and sew it to the, to the heart. Uh, for the tricuspid valve, individuals that undergo tricuspid valve replacement for whatever reason, uh, either infection or deterioration of the valve, undergo the same process. Pulmonic valve, similar. Tricuspid and pulmonic valve replacements are much rarer than aortic and mitral. Um, I just want to wrap up um, uh, here in a little bit, um, just with a couple more questions. Um, first, um, is valvular heart disorder curable? Can someone who has this condition be cured? So, <laughs> so um, it's treatable. Okay. Okay, uh, it's treatable. And I think it's important for everybody to understand, when we do ultrasounds on individuals, everybody has leaky valves, everyone. It's mild. Okay. Uh, you know, God did a great thing. 
and, and designing us. Uh, however, there's always a little bit of leaking, and 98% of the people in the populations are going to have some sort of leaky valve, okay. and it's not that big of a deal. Okay. It's minimal. It's the the advanced disorders or the severely leaking valve or the severely stenotic or narrowed valves that we have to, to really worry about. And again, uh, we treat that medically. No, nobody's in a rush for sending somebody to surgery. There are people, however, that we're at the end of a rope. We need to do that because the heart's starting to change and we know that if we don't do it right now, it'll be irreversible damage. So again, medical management first, followed by surgical intervention if necessary. And again, we're getting better at that, at putting our cardiothoracic surgeon colleagues out of work, and that's with the transcatheter replacements of, of valves. So it's a curable, it's treatable. Okay, so. Okay, and, the, and again, our ultimate goal is symptoms, right? right. Yeah. yeah. So if you come to me and you have a valvular disorder and you can't do what you wanna do, my goal is to get you to do what you wanna do, and if you have to take medication, you do, but we're gonna postpone or kick the can down the road as long as we can before having to make the decision of, hey, you know what, I need that surgical intervention or I need something better done. Okay, so, well, okay, that's interesting. Um, so finally, just to wrap up uh, my last question here, um, are there any lifestyle changes that a person um, can make to maybe uh, reduce their chance of getting this disorder um, or oh, other things? So, absolutely, it depends on the disorder, obviously. Yeah. Uh, however, we're gonna start with the first thing to tell everybody in medical school, Stop smoking. Okay. <laughs> Tobacco is not good in any way, shape, or form. Uh, anything in over overuse is not good. Um, if you have uh, bacterial infection or if you get strep throat, yeah, we need to treat these people early on. We need to treat the kids early on. That goes to the pediatrician. They're aware of these disorders that they can occur down the down the road. So get that treated. Lifestyle changes, yes. Weight loss, exercise, um, a healthy diet. Can, can prevent the progression of a lot of cardiac disorders, including valvular heart disease, ischemic heart disease. And again, we go back to too much red meat is not good, more white meat, more vegetables, and exercise getting down to an ideal body weight. Yeah, so what's great is a lot of these uh, preventative uh, treatment or preventative uh, ways, they, like you said, mm -hmm. they, it's not just valvular heart disease that it um, can, may prevent or reduce your risk, but there's a lot of other diseases that will Absolutely. That, so, but, yeah, yeah, and okay. for those that are already down the road, we're here for you. Yeah. And so. for those that are coming up the road, change your lifestyle so I don't have to see you. Alrighty, so sounds good. Well, Dr. Martin, uh, thank you so much again for being on our show, um, and thanks everyone for tuning into The Scope. If you'd like to uh, know more about our show or just know more about Phelps Health, check out phelpshealth.org. <laughs>